100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge-to-edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no-fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets 
Midwest Hunt Podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Randy Newberg of Fresh Tracks TV and Hunt Talk Radio. Randy is a hunter and the voice of public land hunters in America. We discuss the importance of outdoor education, deer camp traditions, how Western hunting has changed over the years, keys to success rifle hunting elk, and what you can do to improve land access. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday Story of the Week, we have a story coming out of Pennsylvania from Jack Dono. And Jack wrote in, we have a tradition of hiking to the top of the mountain and doing drives all day for the first day of rifle season in Pennsylvania. There were seven of us this year, three father and sons and my cousin's friend. Three of the four of us young bucks live out of state now. I go to school in Vermont. So we miss almost all a bow and rifle season, and we will shoot about any legal buck being our only chance. The dads also care more about us shooting deer, so they drive all day. On the second drive, we got a great buck. In the following drive, we got a meat buck and a barely legal. Sadly, I was the only one that didn't get one. One last thing, instead of yips to communicate, we use crow calls and have a whole system. Example, two short bursts means here I am moving and two long bursts mean here I am waiting. <laughs> well, Jack, that's an awesome story. I love hearing stuff that comes from you know doing the, the long-lasting tradition of deer drives here in Pennsylvania and also some some nice bucks and even a bonus coyote that uh, I saw in the photos there as well. So congratulations on that. It's pretty awesome to see it. I like the crow call tip too. That's that's a little bit different than our yips. I, I like it. But um, yeah, thank you for sending that in. If anybody wants to check out the photos, I recommend heading over to East Meets West Hunt on Instagram or East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook. And you can check out the, the photos and the, the story there as well. If you have your own Mountain Buck Monday submission you want to send in, just send it to my email, bo at eastmeetswesthunt.com. Just a short paragraph and uh, a few photos would would be great. And uh, just just an FYI, when you are sending in photos, try to make them as, as clean as possible as far as um, without, you know, guts hanging out or anything like that, you know, we... Putting our best foot forward on on social media is uh, is the, the best for for what we're doing there. Um, you know, a platform like Go Wild or something that's all hunters, they all understand. But when you have it where it's out there in front of other people that may be non hunters that see that, it's important to to keep those photos clean. So just the tip as you as you send that in there, but. Thanks for all the submissions we've gotten so far. Still have a long list to go through and uh, just keep, keep them coming. I, I love doing the, the Mountain Buck Monday stuff. In other news, this week, well, I guess the, the end of this week and into the weekend, I'll be at Total Archery Challenge in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania. I'll have an East Meets West booth. Um, it will also be attached to the Timber Ninja booth. So if you want to come try out some of the new saddles you talk about, climbing sticks, camera arms, all the accessories, that stuff will all be there. Um, and then uh, doing some podcasting and and just kind of hanging out uh, there at the booth. So come by and, and check it out. Have some of uh, my new apparel that I uh, haven't launched yet that I'm planning on just uh, releasing at Total Archer Challenge first. Some new hats are pretty cool and, and uh, leather koozies, some other stuff. 
So that, that'll be fun. And also I'm going to be doing a prime RevX bow giveaway. So I'm going to be doing that outside of total archery challenge too, to, to be entered to win. I'll announce the details on that, uh, at a later date here, but this, um, you, you'll be able to sign up right there and have the chance of being able to, to get your own RevX. I did a giveaway like this last year and it was really cool, uh, to be able to do. So I'm going to do it again, give away a prime bow. So stop by the booth and ask uh, how you can, how you can win that. And, uh, we'll get you, we'll get you all signed up. But with that being said, let's jump into this episode with Randy Newberg. Randy is someone I've looked up to for a long time. I really enjoy what he does, and he's such an important voice for hunters and and especially public land hunters, and and really you know putting money where his mouth is, so to speak. And and uh, I've just I've learned so much from Randy over the years, and and it's, it was a complete honor to be able to have him as a guest on the podcast here. So. That being said, have a great rest of your week, and uh, we will talk to you next week. Randy, how about you do the intro on this? Oh, oh, can, I don't can, know. Why would I do the intro? Because I, I think you have the the famous intros to your oh to, to any of your shows or your podcast. <laughs> All right, hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of East Meets West podcast. How was that? <laughs> That was exactly what I was looking for. Really? Oh, man. Oh, I charge extra for that. You know? I, I, listen, that's why I asked you when you're already on the air so that you can't come back and, and you know charge me with it or make me sign any paperwork, anything like that. So. I, I get it. All right. No. So, uh, you know, the part that's faking me out here that's really going to worry me is we're shooting video of this. I don't video my podcasts. So if I'm making all kinds of weird facial expressions, you're going to capture it all <laughs> and you're going to show the world. And they're going to be like, that's what Newberg looks like when he does a podcast, yep. man. God, I don't <laughs> got to do any podcasts with that guy. <laughs> no, but Randy, thank you so much for agreeing to do this and coming on. I'm, I'm uh, super excited about it. You've been somebody that I've looked up to in the hunting space for a long time, not only from a hunter, but from being a public land advocate and just conservationist and everything so thank you for coming on yeah well thanks for having me Bo. you're you're here in the in the neighborhood of bozeman montana it's the least i could do i know it's funny i was when i was talking to ryan uh, when we were scheduling this outdoor class event and uh, i was like you think you know randy would be open to doing a podcast with me he's like well you could pop in his office because we're recording at his <laughs> his office and i was like well that that makes that kind of easier <laughs> yeah so Bo, you you've got to see our office in its full state of disrepair disarray and disrepair so apologies that we didn't polish it up before you got here no i i'm this is a, a cool building and place and i love your guys' setups that you have here and your team that you have has been great and they got all this stuff set up i'm not used to i'm used to running around with all my equipment <laughs> trying to get it set up and i'm not the best with a camera so it's always like you know this is i came in sat down and everything was going so thanks to your whole team for doing that yeah well, <laughs> least we can do you know if we don't do much work at least the work we do we should be good at right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's one way of looking at it that's what my uncle used to say you do good work randy just not much of it yeah <laughs> That's great. And so Randy, it was, it was funny. It was, I guess about a little over a year ago when you had reached out to me to, to do a whitetail course in outdoor class. And it was funny because I got a text 
and I said, Hey Bo, this is Randy Newberg. Do you mind giving me a call? And I was just like, what? Like what, what does Randy Newberg want to talk to me about? And, uh, I was, uh, I was ecstatic about that. (laughs) Well, uh, you got ratted out by our mutual good friend, Tony Peterson. Yes. Tony is a a great human being. And I was, I was honored that he, uh, decided to give me or give you my name to do this. It might have, maybe it was like number 10 in the list and you're not telling me, but no, Tony, he said, I have just the guy for you. (laughs) And I'll, I'll admit, I'm like, when Tony tells me something like that, do I need to rethink this? Because he's usually a man of contemplation and he just had it like, boom. I'm like, well, if Tony says so, good enough for me. So, and then <laughs> and, you called me. Yeah, and then here we are, you know, over a year later, just yeah. finished up recording the first course of at least three that I'll be doing uh, yeah. through Outdoor Class. So it's pretty exciting, incredible just professional environment, and the amount of detail that go into these courses is absolutely incredible. And yeah. it's it's a pretty cool um avenue there. Were you the one that came up with the idea for outdoor class? It wasn't just me. It was, uh, a, I'll call it a conglomeration of ideas and enough of us kicking this around so many times. Uh, you know, we, we understand that there's a lot of need out there for online learning and I don't care whether it's in hunting or business or, you know, whatever your profession or, or interest is. And no one was really doing this other than Corey Jacobson, good friend of mine. And Corey had asked me to do some things related to his university of elk hunting, which is part of it's now folded in and you get that as part of the outdoor class platform. And so we started talking about it. And one day Corey said, you know, we keep talking about making this bigger and taking it to other spaces and places, but I don't want to have a bunch of employees. I don't want a production team. I don't want this. I don't. I'm like, well, I know how you do that without all those things. And so, uh, eventually, Corey and and I talked about it, and then Go Hunt talked about it, and RMEF talked about it, and a whole bunch of us were talking about it, and we're like, well, let's do this. So. Uh, that's how it came together. And it's now, it launched last June, June of 2022, but there were two years of prep time leading up to that. Yeah. And I feel like you had hinted to doing this for a while, um, because of like everything that's been going on with social media and YouTube and, and not being so friendly with hunters and, uh, and uh, yeah, you'd hinted around to it and I had, I'd been looking to build my own course for, I've been talking about it for a good three years, but the idea of figuring out how to make that all happen by myself was very difficult. And as I started getting into it, I'm like, man, this is going to be a lot of you know money just to, to get it off the ground and do it. And so it was like a huge relief when, when you guys came to me and were like, let's, let's do this. And what's, what's cool about it. And like any other course that I've ever taken online, which I'm, I'm a big proponent myself in mm-hmm. buying online courses, whether it's for business, if I want to learn something and trying to fast track my way to get better at something that I'm not very good at, or maybe I just want to get better at. Yep. And what's cool about outdoor class and why I, why I was really bought in is the people only pay one price and they get access to my course. They get access to your courses, Corey's Remy's Hank Shaw's like all these people that, and anything from cooking to hunting and, and everything else. And I think that's where 
where it's like, man, this is a really cool platform. Yeah. And for me, I, I'm like you, even though I'm old and gray, I'm not like you in that respect. You're, <laughs> you're young and spry, but, uh, over the COVID thing, I started doing a lot of online learning. I took a, a digital marketing class through Cornell university online. And I, at first I'm like, uh, 1800 bucks for this. And am, am I going to learn anything? I was impressed with how much I could learn through online learning. So then I started subscribing to Masterclass. And I'm taking all these business things and these self-improvement things. I'm like, all right, this definitely could work in the hunting space. And so, uh, yeah, that is the beauty of it. And, you know, our goal with uh, Outdoor Class is that we have true subject matter experts. These are people who've been there and done that, uh, seen it. And... What's the old saying? If you really want to understand a subject, try to teach it. Yeah. And, and I find that for myself, even with 30 whatever years of elk hunting, how much better I am at framing it and trying to explain it when I force myself to have to teach this topic, you know, whatever portion of the chapter or whatever chapter of the course in five minutes. Yeah. Whoa. Now I got to cl- cut through all the fluff. And if it's not relevant, I got to cut it because I only got five minutes, eight minutes, whatever the the script writer tells me I have for yeah. capacity. So, yeah, and isn't it? It's funny because for me, when I started doing more teaching and I'm hosting these camps and doing things to help people scout whitetails, I've done it my whole life. But it until I had to try to teach it and put it, <laughs> and it's actually helped me become better and more efficient because I figured out what the key things I need to focus on and cut out all the what ifs and the fluffs and just like, okay, these are the general rules of thumb go with this. And, and it just, it's helped me out a ton by teaching and also learning and in conjunction with that. Yeah. I've, when I did my rifle elk hunting course, I said, if there's more than three points I'm trying to make, it deserves its own chapter. Yeah. And so I, I'm really basic in how I, how I do things. I, yeah, you know, most people know I, I'm a CPA tax accountant and my last two years of of the business program, you get to take a few electives. I took business and professional speaking and communications. And uh, I can't even remember the professor's name, but she said, if you're doing instructional content, there's a really easy way to do it. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. <laughs> <laughs> and so if my course uh, outline and my chapters all sound the same of an intro of here's what I'm going to tell you, and then a whole bunch of talk about telling you, and then a final two sentences of here's what I told you, well, that's what comes from taking communication classes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it's, it's super helpful as far as being able to take classes and anything. I mean, to, I, I was, my profession is an environmental health and safety manager. That's what I was in Whoa. and completely different than anything like this. I had yep. to learn, you know, marketing, business, finance, all this stuff. And I had no idea about any of it. So I just went to, you know, experts and tried to learn online to be able to do that. And even for, you know, for me being from Pennsylvania, I started this podcast around wanting to learn more about going out West. And, and really? that was, so it wasn't even surrounding by whitetail at the beginning, even though that's what I knew. I wanted to learn more selfishly, but 
I figured if I throw a mic on, I can help other people do the same. When I first went out to hunt Colorado and it was about eight years ago now, eight or nine years ago. And I was like, first time I, I did it and I went out there and I, I didn't shoot an elk, but I, I spent seven days out West and I came back and everybody's like, man, like, I wish I had the time, the money and all these things that you, you, know, you had. And I'm like, it really wasn't that hard. I just had to do it. And you had to put together a plan and some research and I had found podcasts at that point and videos. I watched your videos. I took Corey's course and like started, I'm like, I want to talk to more of these people and learn about that and, and to be able to do it. And, and you know, now I, I'm going on multiple trips, you know, every year and planning these things and it's just become second nature. But, you know, at the beginning it wasn't that way. Yeah. For so for you, you know, you were from Minnesota, correct? Yeah, way up northern Minnesota, right near the Canadian border. Did you hunt did you hunt whitetails when you were there? That was it. Whitetails and grouse or partridges, they call them up there. That was that <laughs> and then a whole lot of beaver trapping. Okay. Because the Minnesota, uh, as as I call like those types of areas, the big woods. Yeah. Is that what you guys call it too? Yeah. We called it the the big woods or the north woods. It's it's completely different than southern Minnesota or even the southern two-thirds of Minnesota. It's it's probably more reflective of if you go up to the UP of Michigan or somewhere up there. Yeah. And and from what I've, I've been told is like it's very similar to what I hunt in Pennsylvania and a lot of the Appalachian mountain regions, other than there's not as much terrain, but it's yeah. monotonous timber essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not highly productive, uh, whitetail ground at all, but, yeah. uh, you know, some animals do get older just because the density of the, of the vegetation makes it hard to get in on a real smart old whitetail buck. Did, did you have like a deer camp tradition? We, it's funny you say that where right now, in fact, when we're done with this podcast, we're reviewing the next episode that'll roll out on one of our platforms. And it's me going back to Northern Minnesota last November and making the circuit around all the old deer camps that my buddies had, which when I was growing up there, their dads and their grandfathers had those camps. And then it's been handed down generation to generation. So for me, it was a very rich flood of memories going back to all these old deer camps that my dad would take me to. Yeah. Like, hey, let's stop in at Ferguson's. Let's stop in out at Cody's. Let's. And so in the midday break, we'd stop in at all these old deer camps. And uh, it, was, it was really cool. And it's a, a big part of that tradition back there. Yeah. And, and it's anyone that's listened to, to my podcast knows, but I have a, I have a thing where I'm trying to ingrain the deer camp tradition in the younger generations and trying to help that because that that's, it was such a big part of my life and still is our deer camp. Although it's in the same town that I live in, it's still a thing. You know, we go to our deer <laughs> camp and people come from all the city areas and come to the middle of nowhere, as they call going to the mountains, they call it, yeah. you know, that's just where I grew up. But the deer camp traditions of going to different people's camps, you might have, you know, a steak dinner before the rifle season here, or you go out and have burgers over here and hanging out and maybe a couple beers and, and standing around the meat pole and all of that. And I, I want, I see that kind of dying a little bit is as the generations kind of move on. And I want to continue that to happen because it's such such a big part of my life. Yeah. uh, You saw me smiling when you brought that up. My wife not being from Northern Minnesota and she goes back and hears my friends talking about all these stories. And one day she asked me, she said, 
Dick's deer camp is only like five miles from his house. Why does he spend two weeks out there? I'm like, you got to be there to understand it, honey. (laughs) But that traditional thing that you're talking about is, to me, is just, uh, it's so formative of who I am and how I see the world today. And I hope the young hunters uh, continue to have those kind of things from generation to generation because it, it, there's not a part of my being as a hunter that isn't somehow uh, wearing the fingerprints of those deer camps. Yeah, and and it's funny because now that that I do, uh, I guess everything with East meets West full time. You know, I have the ability to go hunt more places and do this, but everyone always asks me, well, you know you know, you're a big whitetail hunter. You don't go to Iowa or, or Kansas or some of these places very often to, to go hunt during November and, and, and beginning of December. And they're like, why? I'm like, I, I want to be, I want to be a deer camp. I don't want to miss anyone in the family, you know, bringing deer in and hanging out and we'll go there and tell stories, you know, after the hunts and kind of recap and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe my uncle over here is having a bad, you know, bad run. He hasn't seen a deer in three days. And we talk through strategy and go through that. And I'm like, I love that more so than, than anything. And it's yeah. such a, such a big part of, of my background. And that that's cool. I didn't, I did not know that background with you. So I'm excited to see, is that going to be on your YouTube channel that yeah. comes out? Yeah, it'll be on our Fresh Tracks Plus platform. And then about, I think six months later, it'll be out on YouTube. Okay. So. Yeah, it's, nice. uh, it was it was a very memorable time to go back there. My brother still lived back there, so he and I got to spend five days hanging out and, and all my high school buddies and just cousins and second cousins. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know how it is when you get in those places. People who might live far, far away come home for deer season. And yeah. The, the one thing that I my camera guy, Jace, was there, I went up and did a thing for the school and found out that they still close the school, our little school, the first two day, the first Monday and Tuesday of deer season. I'm like, all right, everything is good in the world. We still <laughs> yeah. close the school for the first two days. So, but that's, that's just how it is up there. It's, hunting is the culture. It's the tradition. It defines a lot of relationships. It defines the people in a lot of ways. And so being there and trying to tell that story was important to me, even though in five days of hunting, I only saw about seven or eight deer and I did not see an antler. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, so what made you, what made you want to go out West and start that journey? Man, I, I'm going to blame it on the early influencers. The, the, <laughs> the guys who wrote really good articles in the hunting magazines, I'd go to my library in my high school and during study hall and I just read hunting magazines and there was a lot of talk about Montana and Wyoming and Idaho and Colorado. And I just said, you know what? I love to hunt. That's what I live for. That's what I'm going to do. I'm, somehow I'm living where I can hunt elk every year and where I can hunt mule deer and pronghorn. And so I ended up here in 1991, uh, went to college in Arizona and Nevada for a few years. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty spoiled to live here. You're a bit by the bug. Yeah, it, it's uh, the, you know, uh, yeah, I've, I'm fully, fully uh, infected by whatever that disease is. It's not curable. No, it's not. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's something that this is the, this is the first year in, in a little while that I haven't 
had an elk tag. I had one and I turned it back in because I'm going moose hunting in Alaska during September. So that's, that's, that's a, that's a good, good reason, a good reason. But at the same time, it's like, I look forward to that every single year and, and I'm not by any means a good elk hunter, but I love learning and trying to be, and just being out there. I mean, it went from the first year being out there for, you know, seven days to last year spending 21 days and in, in Montana. And like, it was just like, it's, it's just definitely that bug has been, has been bit. But one, one thing that, that I've, I've talked a lot on this podcast about elk hunting and I've had, you know, I've had Corey on probably five or six times. I've had a ton of very good elk hunters, but everything's always been focused around hunting with a bow. Right. And, and I know well, you hunt with a bow, you hunt with all weapons. It seems right. like you're an equal opportunity. I am, but if I want to put meat in my freezer, I grab my rifle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so I guess it, I, the thing I wanted to ask you is what, what do you think some of the, the, the key differences are between archery elk hunting and rifle elk hunting? And I had went through your course on rifle elk hunting and it actually got me really excited to try that here at some point is I've got some points in different states and also, you know, in Montana where, you know, if you, with your general license that if you don't happen to fill a tag in archery, you can, you know, pick up the rifle when that opens up and some other yeah. states are like that as well. So. Have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? Well, you can with CyberScout from Spartan Forge. CyberScout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. CyberScout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%. And if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S. And I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade Short Barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. Yeah, there's, you know, in my course that, that you went through, I break it out into five calendar periods. The early season, which is late August, the pre-rut, early September, the peak rut, which runs for three to four weeks. Then we get into the post-rut, and that's when the rifle seasons start. Uh, post-rut and late season are the rifle seasons, and the elk are just behaving differently because they have a different need. Okay, in, in the rut, they have... A seasonal need breeding but to be breeding they need to have cows and the cows are on food all the time so in the rut during the archery seasons elk are so much easier to locate one they're making a lot of noise uh, in in most instances two they're very active on the landscape they're moving a lot 
the cows are having to put on a lot of weight at that time of year. So they're up on their feet, even in midday. You get to the rifle seasons of the post rut, which is about October 15th or 20th to the end of October. And then you get to the late season, which is about the first week of November and on. The bull elk, which is mostly what you can get a tag for uh, on public land. So I, I, I should preface this by saying we're talking about highly pressured public land elk here. They're in a sanctuary mode. You have to go to the places that other hunters don't want to go to. And the elk have figured that out year after year after year that, oh, if I crawl in this little nook here, everybody walks right by me. Or I'm just far enough away from the trailhead that no one's coming in here. Or it's just too steep when you leave the trailhead. So nobody's willing to go that 600 feet of really steep stuff, even though it benches out. So I'm just going to hang out here. So... Finding elk is a whole lot more of a challenge in rifle season. And I always say that you, you can't catch a fish in a bathtub. Reason being, there's no fish in your bathtub. Well, if you spend most of your time hunting where there aren't any elk, you're not going to find many. Yeah. And uh, all of the stuff that is in my instructional content is a, focused on finding elk. Because with a rifle in your hand, if you find an elk and you locate it, it's a way easier animal to kill than a whitetail buck with a rifle. That whitetail buck somehow will put the slip on you. He'll he'll find some way to sneak around, and he'll be like, what? <laughs> he'll do some hook, and he'll wind you or whatever. Usually when you're rifle hunting for elk, they're tucked away, and they're just bedded, and they're going to be in there. They might be feeding a little bit, but the country is usually way more open, so you can get that 200, 300-yard shot pretty easily. Yeah. And uh, I just – Tell people, as much as some of the elk hunters don't want to hear that, the easiest animal to kill with a rifle, once you have found it, is a bull elk. Yeah, and and, and but but like what you said is the finding part That's... is the is the difficult. And, <laughs> yeah. and one thing when I was going through your course that I picked up on when you were talking about these sanctuary zones, mm -hmm. and it actually like in, in the big woods, whitetails – during rifle season, especially in Pennsylvania, you know, the most hunters per square mile in the country, they go to these sanctuary zones. And one thing with whitetails, and I want to see if it's similar with elk, but it's not always the furthest place away from the roads that they'll go. It just might be that overlooked spot or that steep, you know, that place, say the parking lots down here. And it's, you know, you got to go up 1500 vertical feet up to this side or whatever it might be. There's like these little hidden pockets yep. and like identifying those hidden pockets takes kind of a, I don't know if a trained eye is the right way of looking at it, you know, whether it's through e-scouting or whatever, but how do you, would you think that's kind of accurate with elk as well? Yep. It's very accurate with elk. And there's a couple things that you will learn that these sanctuaries they use have a couple common characteristics besides the fact that most hunters don't want to go there is it's very difficult to approach. It's either a noisy approach or these animals live there 365 days a year. They know what the wind does every minute of every day from every spot on their landscape. So they go and bed in these places where to us, we, you know, we're standing on this slope and we got a steady uphill thermal as quick as you get around to where you would be near them. All of a sudden you got a swirl and they smelled it. They're gone. So there's usually a, a very difficult approach to their sanctuaries, and there's usually a really easy exit for them. 
or someplace where they can just bail out and be gone in a hurry, just like that white tail buck, right? He, yeah. He's always got one spot in that thicket or in that jungle brush where he's got a quick exit. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like like uh, a mature white tail buck when you get in like in the hills or the mountains, like they'll like to bed where they'll be like just on the edge of a like a bench or a point where they can look down over. They have a great visual, but they have that wind coming over their back, and then they have the thermals coming up. They have everything <laughs> to their advantage. Yeah, and uh, and it sounds like elk are you know do the same so thing. much, so much the same thing. They, they, I think people don't give them enough credit for the fact of how much time they spend in that spot on that location where. If you and I walk into our house and the furniture is rearranged, we know that because we live there every day. If they go walking down a trail and there's something, you know, a limb snapped or a, a blaze on a tree or a ribbon hanging on a limb, they're like, that ain't right. You know, they, they're very aware of their situation. So you got all that and then you've just got intense hunting pressure and they – Year after year, they go to these spots and they know, you know what? We made it through all that hunting pressure and nobody got shot this year. Uh, and so they use them year after year. And I tell people, if you find a sanctuary that bull elk are using, and they're usually in bachelor, bachelor groups at this time, so you'll have a group of three to eight bulls in one group, don't tell anyone. Don't tell your brother don't tell your coworker. Don't tell your boss. Don't don't tell the neighbor. <laughs> lie, lie about it. Because if you tell them, they're going to go there, or they're going to bring someone there, and pretty soon it's not going to be a sanctuary. If you find them, if you get a milk route of sanctuaries, kind of on your hunting trail, year after year, if you hit those every day, you're gonna you're gonna fill your tag. Yeah. Do you, do you find it hard with you traveling as much and trying going to new places to find those sanctuaries? Yeah, it's, <laughs> and, and that, that is the challenge, but I think that's made me better at, at e-scouting. Um, uh, we go somewhere, we got five days and I say, we got five days to figure it out, sort it out and hopefully pack it out. <laughs> and these are very often places we've never been to. So I show up. I've spent most of the summer out on my maps with my e-scouting tools. I know the bedding places. I know the types of things they're going to be looking at. All right, what's the, you know, is it late season? Is it post-rut? Are they going to be in bachelor groups? They're, they're just a whole series of things that I go into in that course about what I'm looking for. But when I show up on this device, I will have – 20 or more sanctuary spots and my best one will be morning one my second best one will be afternoon one my third best one will what that i think anyhow will be morning two and i i keep there's a a system and and a rhythm to that you know i there's some basics we know that elk like to be a mile from a motorized trail or a road not always but mostly uh, they like to bed on a slope less than 20 degrees. Okay, that's pretty obvious. I can do that with a few clicks of, of the terrain analysis tool. And so I, I start doing that. And it, my process is eliminating where they aren't. Back to the idea I said, you can't yeah. catch a fish in a bathtub. Get rid of the terrain where they're less likely to be. 
And by the time you do that, you're going to be down to about 10% of the unit. Now I'm looking for the spot on the spot in that remaining 10% that would likely hold the bull elk on that yeah. day. Yeah, that, that gets me excited just thinking about when you find, you know, because when you start e-scouting an area, well, it doesn't matter if it's for elk, if it's for whitetails, whatever. You start with this big area and it's just like overwhelming at first. But as you start going through and like when I go through, I'll I'll go through and mark some of these key areas and then I'll get away from it, you know, do whatever and then come back to it, you know, the next day or whatever and look at it again. Then you start seeing you know, more trends and being able to find these spots within the spots yep. where, where they are. And I think you, you brought up another really good point that I want to highlight is, you know, this hunt plan that, that you create and having mm-hmm. that syst, uh, systematic, I can't think of the word, but having it ready so that you have a plan when you go in there to take yep. advantage of most of that time. Oh yeah. I have a plan. Uh, you know, I've always got a camera guy or two following me around. They've got a copy of it. And we worked that plan. Okay, the first morning spot that I thought was my A-plus spot may turn out to be a dud. And, okay, I better have a second spot and a third spot and a fourth spot. Because if after the first day, say noon the second day, it's like, well, I haven't seen any. I'll just wander the woods for the next three and a half days. I'm counting on luck at that point. And I can't – maybe some people are lucky than luckier than me, but – Whenever I just wing it and hope for good luck, the outcome's usually not that good. So I have a plan and I stick to it. And mentally, elk hunting wears you down because it's it's very strenuous. There's a lot of hunting pressure. The elk are in places that are hard to get to. And one thing I know that every time I go to one of my spots and that's not where they're at, okay, I'm one step closer to where they're at. So by the morning of day five, most people be like, oh, man, I'm just, I'm wiped out. I, I'm going to sleep in. For me, I'm optimistic. I'm thinking, all right, I, I know they're, these remaining spots, they are in there. I'm going to go there. I'm killing one this morning. Yeah. And so I, I know it takes some time and experience to develop that confidence level, but I don't fret if I don't find them in my first spot or my second spot or my fifth spot. I've got probably 20 spots that I'm checking out and every one of them have a purpose to it. And we walk through that and in, in my course of how I do it. And I try to put myself back into the mindset of when I first moved out West and how hard elk hunting was for me at that time. And I sucked at elk hunting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think everybody does when they get yeah. into it. Yeah. So I, I try to put myself in those shoes. I have journals with so many notes and, and lessons that I learned every day, even at this point in my life, every day I'm learning something when I'm out there, I'm making a mistake. Oh man, what was that? How, come on, Randy. But it's just the nature of elk hunting. Yeah. And so I, from an instructing standpoint, I just try to put my mind back there and say, what were those lessons that I learned along the way that made it more likely I'd find elk and consistently find elk? And what was I doing wrong? What were the false ideas I had that caused me to not see any elk? And so you'll see the way that I do. You you have seen by watching the course, how I do that and how it is very methodical. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because again, I keep going back to these, 
correlations to, to whitetail hunting, because that's what I know. And that's what a lot of the, the listeners are familiar with, but I take the, I take a very similar approach to my whitetail hunt plans, even in my home States. Like I'll have, I'll go, it's, it's going to be very detailed laid out in this, this outdoor class that, that will be coming out this summer, but it's having these areas and having the spots within the spots, having them figured out what wind directions are the best to get into a tree here, here. So when you're, when you're on day four of sitting all day during the rut and you're like, you only have a couple days of vacation left and you're like, what am I going to do? You don't, you don't have to put that stress on yourself. Follow the plan, go through that. Because that's when I, I did a survey of people that listened to here, what is your number one thing that you struggle with? And it came down to, confidence in their spots and it was because when you get in areas whether it's you know something like rifle hunting elk and you're it's you know these elk are living in such small areas on this vast landscape or you're hunting the big woods where there's low deer densities and you're just not seeing many deer it it can be difficult to keep your mind in the game for a long period of time and like those plans that's i mean even for me i've been i've been hunting whitetails my entire life and every year i get into a point where i'm like do i know anything <laughs> you know <laughs> do i know anything and i just have to go through these options in my plan and maybe have to shift or adapt maybe it's weather that will change things you know maybe it's an unseasonably warm year that might change things from the 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 plan standpoint but following that plan will help you keep your mind sane. And I, in my opinion, enjoy the hunt a little bit more. Yeah. For, for me, it's kind of like trying to solve a, a mystery in some respects. Uh, but all those variables you talk about, like in the West, we have drought periods. Well, elk, you're going to find elk in November in a way different area in a drought year than you are in a normal year and completely different than where you're going to find them in a wet year. So there, there, it doesn't matter what environmental condition you're talking about. You have to be processing that, thinking about it. Okay, here's my basic plan. Here's the principles I never deviate from. How do these variables readjust what spot or what location or what pattern I'm going to use? And uh, I... I wish I could say it's a 12 step program. And after step 12, a big bull walks out and you shoot one. <laughs> I mean, it's not that precise. We're, we're dealing with uh, elk that don't read a script and such like that. But I, the feedback I've got from a lot of people is, you know what, this, this takes a lot of my trials and tribulations and it helps me sort out what I need to focus on and what I don't need to focus on. Yeah. And you, you probably see it in the whitetail world. In the elk world, everyone thinks if I buy the latest and newest doodad or gadget or new rifle every year or whatever, that's going to get me success. No, success mostly comes from investing in yourself, investing yeah. in your knowledge set and understanding that species, what their needs are at that day you are hunting them. And that's what's going to get you success. All the bells and whistles and other stuff, those are... Uh, I'm not a very good sales guy because I, I, I just uh, I went through that cycle in my life where I struggled at elk hunting and I thought, well, if I buy some more of this or I put some goofy, stinky wafer on the back of my shirt or if I rolled an elk urine, all that does is stink up your truck and tell your wife and your wife tells you when you get home, don't ever do that again. You know, I did all the stupid things and I never got an elk on account of any of them. But when I sat down one summer and read a 600-page textbook on elk ecology, and I probably read it three times, first day of the next season, 
I killed my first bull elk. And since then, I can't tell you how many elk I've, you know, it's, it's like, well, this isn't as hard as I made it. I just wasn't willing to make the investment in my knowledge set that it required to be consistently successful. Yeah, that that's so important because I think we all go through the the gear aspect. <laughs> and, and believe me, I, I love quality gear. Mm-hmm as much if not more than anyone and yeah. i think that's i think that's great and it helps you know your comfortability your experience while you're out there but at the same time that's not what brings you actual success right i, I had someone message me about um some so i i use you may may or may not have seen hunting out of a saddle so it's like a it's yeah. like it's like a tree stand but lighter right. and you're you're attached like almost like a rock climbing harness but so they're like, oh, you know, you have this, you know, gear that costs this much. It's lightweight, blah, blah, blah. I only have this. So I sent them a picture of when I was hauling in the, you know, the, <laughs> the guide gear, the cheapest, like heavy steel sticks and stands. And it's like, I was doing the same thing back then. Yeah, it's a little bit easier on my, my back now carrying that stuff in. <laughs> but it doesn't, that doesn't propel you uh, to success. No, it doesn't. My uh, we're, we're thinking about doing a video on this because of this whole gear thing and how I de-emphasize gear so much anymore. The crew was looking at a bunch of my old photographs. When I first moved to Bozeman, Montana, I hunted out of a pair of Converse All-Stars. The leather <laughs> ones with the chevron and the stripe that, that uh, back in the day you would have seen Larry Bird or uh, Magic Johnson wearing them, that type of Converse All-Star. And there's pictures of me in six inches of snow with a picture of a pronghorn or a white-tailed deer. And people are like, nice hunting boots, Randy. Uh, <laughs> and my backpack at that time was my Jansport book bag from college. Uh, I had uh, one rifle, and it had a straight six-power loophole scope on it. it. It just The gear that I used was so basic. And... I, I want to do that video to just show people, you know what? The first thing you need to do is structure whatever it is in your priorities of finances or time so you can get more time in the woods to make more mistakes and learn more. All the gear, yeah, like you said, I, I'm the same way. I like being comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like being warm. I'm at that point in my life for a good pack and a good pair of boots and all those other things, and I have multiple rifles now, but none of those are the make or break of my success. The make or break of my success is the time I've been lucky to spend out in the woods and make a lot of mistakes, come home, evaluate and learn. All right. What, why, why did I do that? That, that, I know better than that, but you know what? I still make those mistakes, but that's that knowledge set that you build over time. They call experience. So how do you get more experiences? Make sure you're getting those experiences first and foremost. And if you still have a budget to buy brand new gear, buy brand new gear every year if you want to. Yeah. How, how have you, uh, kind of transitioning a little bit here, how have you seen hunting change in the West, like from when you moved out here in the early 90s to now? Do oh, you- uh, yeah, it's changed a lot in terms of gear, but... People ask me that a lot of what has been the real revolutionary thing, and I've always been a map junkie. I I've, I, I still can't bring myself to throw away my old surface maps. But what do we have on these devices? Digital maps. Well, I'm shooting a new bow this year, and I am pumped. After playing around with a buddy's Hoyt RX-8, 
the smile on my face made the decision for me. The first thing I noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like I prefer. I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the Go Sticks 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX Exact Cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt. Ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier. If you want to experience what I'm talking about, head to your nearest Hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself. You can learn more at Hoyt.com. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out at, or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at the mobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. That yeah. has been the game changer. Yeah. Uh, when Google Earth came out and we could do scouting from our desktop, it's like, whoa, holy smokes. I drew this New Mexico tag and look at this. But then along came digital maps where all those little hunting holes you thought you knew of because you knew the Forest Service guy who said, oh, yeah, that's public going in there. Or, hey, did you know there's an easement there the BLM guy told you about? None of those are secrets anymore. So everybody has the same information. And for me, I, I would say digital maps were the game changer in the Western hunting space because no, yeah. no one wants to trespass. So you would always err on the side of caution. Well, now it's like, well, just because they had a sign up there, that, wait a second, that, that sign that was public, you know, you go through that mental thing and it's like, Hmm. So I, I would, I would say that's been the biggest game changer. Uh, the other part of it is that, uh, you know, the distances that, we take shots these days, whether it's archery or whether it's rifle or, or whatever, uh, that definitely has the, and maybe I shouldn't say it in terms of distance, our lethality, mm -hmm. regardless of what you have in your hand, a bow or a rifle, the lethality of just the average person is way higher than it ever was. So I, you know, my old 270, I had a straight power scope. It's like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm about... Yeah, I'm three inches high at 120 yards. I know then I'm, okay, I'm four inches low at 300 yards. Here to 300, I'm good. You know, that that's about as complicated as I made it. Yeah. And now, you know, we're out there with our ballistic charts and our kestrel wind measuring devices. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, whoa. And uh, so that's that's probably been uh, the second biggest thing I've seen as a, as a change in elk hunting or western hunting. And, and what's, what's interesting about that, and I think I heard you and Corey talk about this, but looking at it, the statistics as far as success rate really hasn't changed. Oh. 
it's it's been it hovers for for public land bull elk it hovers between 10 and 14 percent nation across the west and yeah some of those limited entry tags are states that are very stingy with their tags yeah they're going to be much higher states like montana that are opportunity states and oregon and idaho it's if you shoot your bull elk every eighth year you're ahead of the game yeah. And that's so wild, wild to think about, but it's, it's, but what's funny too, is because I hear so many people that will complain about, you know, people giving information stuff you do that I do, or, you know, the technology advancements, all these things as far as, oh, it's ruining hunting. It's doing this. But if you look at it, it's not increasing the success rates and making it unfair in my opinion. And the people that are that have been successful are still successful. Yeah. Yeah. The people who are successful are the ones who work the hardest at it. I, and yeah. they're working hard at it in the off season. They're working, they're, they're reading, they're researching, they're thinking things through, they're reading their notes from prior haunts. Those are the people that are consistently still successful at it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've noticed from watching, you know, your videos back when it was TV and then, YouTube and fresh tracks and everything. A lot of times you're filling your tag on the last day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people make that observation and I didn't make that connection for a while. Uh, and so I started going through all those hunts where we filled the tag on the last day. And it gets back a little bit to what I said earlier about how I get pretty excited. Cause I know I'm closer yeah. because I've eliminated even more ground where they aren't. Uh, that's part of it. The other part of it is I will say, and this comes from my whitetail upbringing. I was not that aggressive of an elk hunter when I first started. I was, okay, I found some tracks. I found some beds. I don't want to bump them out of here. So I'd hunt real passively by the fifth day. It's like, well, today's my last day. If I bump them out of here, it doesn't matter. So I do get more aggressive that last day in my hunting approach. And I think that plays part of it also. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. But I, too, I think that I've not just with you though, but I've seen that with a lot of other successful hunters that a lot of times they are filling in the last day. And, and at least from my, the outside looking in, I look at that as you don't give up, you keep right. falling And There's, there's a lot of times when if you're on a, a five or six day hunt that, you know, like you said earlier, by day three, people are kind of if not, they might still be there, but they're mentally checked out of out. it. They're yeah. checked out. Yeah. No, I, I would say that is definitely the case. Um, for me, I am just so enthusiastic about being out in the woods hunting. I, I, all I think about is, well, I could be back at the CPA firm doing tax returns. Right? Or, <laughs> or I, there is not a day when I'm out there where my enthusiasm level isn't high. Now, there might be times when my physical energy level is just in the tank because, you know, it's day 80 of a season. And I, I don't mean this because I want anyone's sympathy. I don't I have the best job in the world. But when it's day 80 and you're sleeping in a cold tent on a mountain in November and it's getting down to five degrees every night and you've been eating crappy meals and you just don't have the energy. And uh, so there are those kind of days. But when I start getting there, I'm thinking, oh, man, there's only – three weeks of hunting season left oh, then I'm going to have to sit, you know? <laughs> so it doesn't take much to get me back propped up again. Like, come on, let's go. Yeah. So, <laughs> but 
it's it's a blessing to get to do what you and I do. Yeah, I, I never forget that. No, I, I totally totally can understand that. And I can also understand the the tiredness that everyone else is probably like, okay, quit complaining, guys. But you know what I mean, like the <laughs> yeah. the grind of of a long season. Yeah, it's it's amazing <laughs> how many people will come out last on their first elk hunt, or they they come out you know every third year or something, and. We'll get to talking and they'll ask me, and I know where they're going when they ask me the question, how many days a year do you hunt elk? And I tell them, oh, I don't know, 60, 65. They're like, how do you do it? I only hunted for six days and I had to come home and sleep for three weeks. <laughs> right. Well, huh. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing for me. It's yeah, uh, it, it's a lot of work. It's, it's exerting, but, you know, I just don't know what else I'd want to be doing with my time and, I've made a lot of sacrifices to be in the position where I can do all this. And I don't take that for granted either. My wife has made a lot of sacrifices. My family has, and I'm blessed with these opportunities. I'm best blessed with these great employees and crew that I get to be with and all my partners that, that help us. And there's not a day where I take any of that for granted. And I, for me, anyhow, that makes it a whole lot easier to say, Hey, remember that email you read the other day where the guy said, oh, I haven't been elk hunting for three years? Go make the most of it, Randy. Yeah. Don't, don't take it for granted. And so that's what I do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what You and I were talking uh, yesterday, and we were in your office, and we were talking about whitetail hunters and elk hunters. And what are a couple things that you see – whitetail hunters that they make that are mistakes when they elk hunt. And then what are a couple of things that whitetail hunters do well as an elk hunter? Yeah. Uh, and when we were talking about that, I was telling you how remarkably successful some whitetail hunters are when it comes to elk hunting, especially archery elk hunting. I carried more of my bad habits with me instead of good habits when I <laughs> transitioned from whitetail to elk. But uh, the thing that, that the whitetail hunters are very good at is – managing the wind and paying attention. They never take the wind for granted. Elk hunters, as a general rule, have a tendency, myself included, we too often take the wind for granted of, uh, it'll blow right over the top of them or, you know, they'll never smell me around the corner. Yeah, they will. There you get this Coriolis effect, right? There's all these things going on. And so whitetail hunters are meticulous about that. They just don't, you know, they don't take anything for chance. Uh, another thing whitetail hunters are very good at is they're very persistent and patient. Elk hunters a little bit have ants in their pants, right? They just got to be stomping around, tromping around. And the example I was telling you uh, yesterday about how many whitetail hunters I know actually will bring a tree stand. And while the average dude goes back to camp at 10 in the morning because the elk quit bugling and he's taking a nap in the wall tent, these whitetail guys are sitting in their tree stands and these bulls, especially mature uh, uh, herd bulls, will come in for a drink of water silently at 11, noon, 1, 2, 3 o'clock. Well, the guy back sleeping in his cot in the wall tent ain't getting a shot at that bull. But that whitetail hunter, who knows it could be an all-day sit, he put an arrow in that bull. And so you get some of the locals are like, oh, I ran a blankety blank guy from Ohio came out here and shot that big bull we were chasing. Well, <laughs> a lot of times there's a good chance that he shot it while you were in the in the wall tent taking your afternoon siesta. So 
Those are the two things I think that translate really, really well. Probably the things that, that I struggled with is I always thought that elk were in this really quiet, almost vacuum type setting where if you crack the limb, oh, they're all going to run away. Elk are so noisy. When they're in the woods, they're meow, you know, calling to each other. And they're, if you ever heard elk running through the woods, it sounds like a herd of bison. <laughs> yeah. So I was uh, way too timid, wasted way too much time and moved way too slow uh, because I was accustomed to that buck bedded in a you know plum thicket who if he heard a limb crack, boy, he, he's on high alert. And uh, so there was that. The other thing that didn't translate well for me is deer have a home range of, you know, 40 acres it'd be, might hold a couple bucks. Not out here. The terrain is just so big. You have to move. You have to be mobile. And if this spot doesn't hold them, you better get to the next spot. And you get to the next spot and the next spot. And the, the animal densities in elk country are way lower than they are in whitetail country. So mobility is huge. And I, I just, I didn't have that taught to me or built into me as I formed as a hunter. So that was, that was a big mistake I made my first however many years of elk hunting. I, I can relate to both of those failures. And the thing is, I had the resources, you know, as far as I've been able to listen to people like you and Corey and all these successful elk hunters say these things. And I still, when I'd get out there, it was so hard to change your mind when you have it set that you got to be super quiet and you, and, and I'm like, Oh, I got to pick apart this entire area, you know, to, and, and spend time in here. There was some sign here, but it's like, okay, they're not here right now. I got to move. And that was so hard for me to understand. And I still struggle with at times, you know, to, to, to understand that, but it's, it's funny hearing that and from someone like you that has a background in both and 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 John Barklow uh has also said similar things he's from Ohio so right. he's you know he grew up whitetail hunting and and understood that so that's that's uh it's pretty funny yeah <laughs> I, I I do think though a lot of whitetail hunters make really good elk hunters once they change just a few of their habits they're whitetail hunters are really good at reading sign really good at understanding that uh and this is a little pitch for my my trapping friends is trapping probably taught me more about animal behavior than any hunting uh and so a lot of you guys back in pennsylvania trap and do stuff like that you're all whitetail hunters you're all really good at reading sign and uh when you're out in these big hills you want to be able to know what's good sign and what's just old dad ignore it keep moving yeah. kind of stuff. And, and white tail guys are usually really good at that. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. So Randy, I do want to be sensitive to your time, mm-hmm. but I have, I have one more thing I want to ask you. So yeah, for sure. What, what can people do to learn more about, how do I want to phrase this? So <clears throat> with seemingly getting more crowded and everything in the Western States. And even, even in a lot of the Eastern States, what can people do to help create more access or learn about it so that they're, instead of complaining that we're taking that energy and putting it in the, in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, well, using that energy to complain on Facebook, isn't going to create any more access. That's, that's the first thing. Uh, but I, I tell people we are losing access at a very rapid pace. And that's why we feel this crowded feeling, no matter whether you're on public or private, is 
first of all, let's not lose any access we currently have. And on private, the number one reason we lose access is usually hunter behavior. So let's respect landowners. Let's follow the rules. Let's do the right things. Um, on public land, uh, we're, we're feeling more and more crowded just because there's more of us getting bumped to public land. So how do we support programs that increase public land access? Uh, you know, they're, they're all the states in the West, anyhow, have these programs like Montana had the what's called block management program where I think 7 million acres of private ground is leased in effect. They say it's to pay for the impacts of public hunting, which lease or not lease, whatever term you want to use. Uh, those kind of programs are really helpful. There are some of the, our nonprofit groups who are out working hard to increase access. Uh, I'll use the Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation since they've been around them and they and their partners have added 1.2 million acres of increased or improved access. So there's a lot of things we can be doing. It's hard work. It's expensive work. Um, support your state wildlife agencies, support the groups that are working on that. And uh, it's, we, every time I see that we lose access somewhere, it's just like, Oh man, it didn't have to be that way. Um, because yeah. we already lose enough of it to development and, you know, you look at the places, I bet you back in Pennsylvania, a lot of the places you've hunted as a kid, probably are subdivisions or yeah. cities or, or whatever. Uh, it, it's happening out here also in the West and in the West, I'm sure I know when I moved out West, I thought, Oh man, this place will never get crowded. No, it, it can feel crowded at times because, you know, even, even, here in Montana, we have lots of ranches that get bought by out-of-staters, and the first thing they do is no hunting. Like We're talking not outfitted, not anything. Just I want to have a place where I look at wildlife on this 20,000 acres. Well, maybe there were 15 people who used to hunt that place. Well, now they're displaced, so yeah. they're – so. It's it's a problem. It's going to take money. It's going to take commitment by all of us uh, to keep – the access we have and to grow the access we have. Uh, for me, I, I try to support those state programs. Wyoming has this program called access. Yes. And it mostly runs on donations and, uh, they do the same thing. They enroll private landowners in their, uh, program to allow public access. And it's a remarkable program in Wyoming. And when I do my tag application every year in Wyoming, there's a spot you make a donation. It's like, you know what? hundred bucks. Yeah count me in or whatever yeah. I can afford at the time. And so there, there's things like that, that, that we can be doing. Uh, I hate, I know your audience is going to hate when I say get involved in policy because the root, root word of policy is the same root word of politics. <laughs> uh, but that's where a lot of this policy stuff gets settled. And uh, being engaged in that is, is very, very helpful. It's uh it's just not like how it was. And so hunters collectively, we have to operate differently. We have to accept that we got to work harder on access because if, if we don't have places to hunt, the quality of the experience for everybody's going to yep. go down the tank. And I grew up in Northern Minnesota. And when my parents divorced, when I was 10, uh, I really didn't know how I was going to hunt. My dad moved away for uh, a while and, it's like, wow, now what do I do? Lucky for me, I had public land 
I could go down and get off the school bus, walk down to our trailer house, grab my 22, grab my 410 or 20 gauge, and I could walk to public land. If it wasn't for that public land, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today. Yeah. So that's why I'm really a huge advocate and try to use our platforms in any way possible for not just public access, but public access on private lands also. Whatever it is that gives people access to get in the outdoors, I'm I'm all in. And so I know that's a long winded way of of answering that question. No, but I, it's I've I've had the benefit of being involved in, in the Western access game for 30 years now. And uh, it's changed, but the constants of it are, there's still three things that remain constant. It's never easy. Someone's always going to be upset and it's never convenient. Yeah. Just, you got to show up and you got to be willing to do the work to create this trailhead or, you know, find a way that how do we buy that 40 acres? It'll get us over to this 500 acres or whatever it is. And there might be times when I ask myself, why am I working with this group? They're, you know, they're, sometimes they're against me. Well, sometimes I got to say, all right, if this gets, gets this done, I guess we're all on the same page today. Might not be tomorrow, but yeah, it's, it's about wins, not about anything else. And, and creating and improving access is the win. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you, you answered that question perfectly. And, and I do think that just the one last thing I want to say about that is the behavior side of it is something we can all can control no matter how much money you do or do not have. And I was in, when I was hunting in Montana last year, I ran into a rancher on public land. He has cattle and he was late getting them out of there, but he was mm -hmm. ta I talked to him for a while and he was like, Oh, you know, he's like, I used to hunt. I don't anymore. And he's like, and he goes, I used to let people hunt my ranch and he goes and come on the property or, you know, say they shot an elk and it went on there. He's like, and he told me some really bad experiences of what people did. And I was like, how can someone right. possibly do that? And it's just that respect that if, if every single person owns their own behaviors, then we'll be in a much better place. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, we all know it only takes one not had to mess it up for a hundred other people. And yep. So that's, that's why usually the first thing out of my mouth when it comes to access is hunter behavior yeah. and, and even on public lands, you know, if we misbehave on public lands and don't follow the, the rules, a lot of times that gets close to or parts of it. Yep. Well, Randy, thank you so much for coming on and yeah, uh, yeah having this conversation with me and do you want to tell everybody where they can find uh, some of the locations they can find your stuff? Sure. <laughs> Yeah, if you want to, we have a big YouTube channel, uh, Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. Uh, I do the Elk Talk podcast with Corey Jacobson. I have my own podcast called Hunt Talk Radio. Uh, I have a large forum, uh, even though a lot of people are like, forums? That's what you old guys do. Uh, <laughs> that, that's called hunttalk.com. And then there's the normal social media channels, uh, but I, I don't know how to do those. I have young people who do my Instagram and <laughs> Facebook stuff, and then... If anyone is interested, we do have a proprietary subscription platform uh, called Fresh Tracks Plus. You go to freshtracks.tv, and uh, they get the first crack at all of our stuff. So Awesome. Thanks, Bo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, and uh, we will talk to you later. All right. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.